This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom from Tel Aviv. You're still there? I already smell vaguely of schnitzel. It's amazing here. <laughs> and tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hi, great to be here. And the longer Liel's there, the more he turns into Shlomo. He doesn't remember Hebrew, but his English takes on an Israeli accent. Because we're always right on the news cycle here at Unorthodox, today on the show, we're digging into the situation in Ukraine in our particular unorthodox way. Tablet contributing writer Vlad Davidson catches us up on what's happening right now on the ground. And senior writer Armin Rosen brings us a story from this past Rosh Hashanah about an event in Ukraine that has been called the Jewish Burning Man. We were just waiting for current events to hand us a moment to play that tape, to give you that story. And lo and behold, Vladimir Putin gave it to us and Armin Rosen. And you, the J. Crew, will be the beneficiaries of this. But before we get to all that good Ukrainian stuff, Liel, what's what's the news from Israel? Catch us up. How are you doing over there? Guys, very big news here in the building. This would, this would be a quiz of sorts because today I ran into a new neighbor in the building where I'm staying, right on the beach in Tel Aviv. And that neighbor, that person in the building informed me that not just in the building, on my very floor resides a famous, or shall I say, infamous internet sensation. Please don't say Ari Nagel. Subject of of a major Netflix <laughs> movie. Tis the Tinder Swindler. <gasps> what? We haven't even talked about the Tinder Swindler. <laughs> wow. And have you been catfished yet? You know, now I don't I don't even want to open. I, I The door's locked. I have like a chair propped up against the handle. I'm. Please tell Mark what the Tinder Swindler is. I hate to be the hopeless, you know, middle-aged dad of many, but what's the Tinder Swindler? Stephanie, I was actually kind of hoping you could tell me because I nodded like appreciatingly when the neighbor told me this. Like, oh, sure, that guy. I have no idea. On this episode, I was going to say we should all watch The Tinder Swindler. It's this new documentary about a Tinder swindler who was basically like catfishing a bunch of women. And it turns out he was like some Israeli guy living. I think he was like from B'nai Brock, but like I guess he's living in Leal's apartment building. It's like everyone's talking about it. And I was going to be like, we should watch it. I was hoping to have watched it by the time we talked about it. But you are down the hall from the Tinder swindler. So he lured the women in on Tinder and then stole their money? He basically like defrauded a bunch of women and he like presented himself as, I guess, the wealthy heir of a diamond merchant. Mm. So he was really playing into stereotypes. And I find that very harmful. So basically, my understanding of Israel is every if you're there for more than a week, you bump into someone who's Israel <laughs> famous. When On my birthright trip, let's see, we saw David Hartman, the famous rabbi, walking down the street. And then I think we saw... One of the Yitzchaks, Rabin was already dead. I think Shamir might have been alive. I don't know. We saw a former president or prime minister just walking to shul Friday night. The Yitzchaks would have been a really great band, like the Ramones. <laughs> yeah, no, I see the Yitzchaks as kind of like a duop band from the 50s. They were they were like the crew cuts or the five satins or something. It's funny because there's a, a lot of people on our Facebook group are trying to guess who's the famous Israeli actor that Liel saw at synagogue. <laughs> um, so now you can guess who the Tinder Swindler is. His name is like Leviev. Like, that's his last. He's not just Israel famous. He's Netflix famous. <laughs> like the Tiger King, basically. I'm very happy that you said all you have to do is be in Israel for a week and you run into someone who's Israel famous. Because I thought you were going to say all you have to do is be in Israel for a week and you run into someone who's like vaguely criminal, which is also <laughs> really true. Well, it's good to have you there on the ground. And we're going to come back to you for more news from uh, Eretz Yisrael in, when we get to news of the Jews in just a minute. But I have to give you the news of New Haven, Connecticut. If you recall, last week, someone wrote in to complain about the fact that on the TV show, The Goldbergs, even though it's a very Jewy family on a very Jewy sitcom, when Grandpa died, they just they cremated him and put his ashes under a tree or something. Grandpa was played by George Siegel. So Stephanie and I made a pact, since neither of us had ever seen The Goldbergs, or I made a pact that I conscripted Stephanie into well, to watch The Goldbergs. I thought we were going to wait until people told us which episodes to watch, but it seems like oh. you've already watched. So now I don't have to watch, which is great. I skipped ahead, although I would love for people to write in and tell us where the classic episodes are because they're not episodes one, two, and three, which are great. <laughs> I've seen them. But but the fact that the show is still going after a 10 years, I think the show must have really hit its stride somewhere a little bit after episode three. Um, the show's amazing. It's set in the 80s. It's based on the writer's life. The writer is a guy named Adam Goldberg, not the Adam Goldberg who was on In Days to Confused and on Friends for a little bit of an arc, but a different Adam Goldberg, Adam F. Goldberg, I think. And it's set in sort of Philly suburbs, Jenkintown in the 80s. 
And it's about a family that I recognize as pretty much all of my cousins, uh, my Philadelphia <laughs> cousins. And I mean, I even know which temple they go to. And it's pretty great. I mean, the soundtrack in the first couple episodes has REO Speedwagon and the Jay Giles Band and Styx. It's like the ultimate 80s soundtrack. One complaint is that <laughs> they actually have, I think the middle brother, Barry, wearing a Philly Flyers sweatshirt, which is totally something he would do, wear a hockey jersey. And he calls someone a jagoff. Now, as somebody who just reported on Pittsburgh for years, I can tell you Jagoff is the ultimate Pittsburgh epithet. It's it's a it's Western Pennsylvania all the way to call someone a Jagoff. And it doesn't mean anything literally. It's just like a, a dick. It's like a schwanz. Yeah, it's a schwanz. Like, don't be a Jagoff. And um would not have said and, this in Philly. It would not have traveled so far north. I, I'm just telling you that like it's, I guess it's conceivable. Someone from Philly could write in, and I know they will, or, or call us, 914-570-4869. I guess there are people in Philly who have said Jagoff, but it is the ultimate, it, it's the ultimate Pittsburgh marker in the way that John, J-A-W-N, which Philadelphians will know, and I won't go into it here, is a Philly marker. It's not that someone not in Philly couldn't say it, but frankly, it's Philly. Jagoff is Western PA, I gotta say. So He was like, Yins, Yins is a Jagoff. Did I do that right? <laughs> yeah. You, hey, you know, Yins guys, don't be such jagoffs. So, but anyway, I think the show is really terrific. Um, it is super dewy in the best way. It's super 80s music. It's a mashup. You know what it's like? It's like Red Oaks on Amazon Prime, which was also like greater Philly, greater New York, 80s, dewy, suburban in a terrific way. And I'm super into it. And Stephanie, I think let's get on that train together. Let's start binging it, okay? Yes. Well, I started a different show. I started watching The Gilded Age on HBO, on my sister's HBO mm, account. Mm. Um, thanks, Fran. And and Fran. it's sort of this like new money, old money, New York, Fifth Avenue, whole thing. And so I'm, I'm watching it. And like maybe because over these past five years, I've just been like conditioned to see Jewishness in things. But basically there's like Christine Baranski, Cynthia Nixon, they're like the old guard. They're old money and they live in this townhouse on Fifth Avenue and 61st Street. And across the street, the series opens with like the final touches being put on this like garish, gaudy, enormous oh. mansion, like seven times the size of all the others. And it's a corner lot and it's huge. And it's it's like ostentatious new money. And it's Bertha and George Russell. And he's like a railroad magnate. He's like a robber baron. And they're like the new blood. And they're- Did his daughter marry Lord Grantham? Is that because the Jewish, is that the Jewish person? <laughs> Don't you remember that on Downton Abbey, yeah, Lord so Grantham's wife cousin, is half yeah. Jewish, right? Yeah. Well, well so, so basically like they both have super dark hair as compared to like a lot of people on the show who are very, very blonde. He's kind of swarthy, I would say. Mm. And like, they're not actually Jewish. I mean, as far as I know, but like they totally read as Jewish where you're like, oh, you guys are like the pushy people who are trying to make it into the upper crust. And you've built this like insane and ins extravagant mansion and no one wants you in. They're like, very, very, very refined old society. They're Jewish. They're not identifiably Jewish, but they do say things like, I'm schwitzing in my top hat. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be such a schwanz. Jeeves, <laughs> uh, where's my heading? Speaking of Jews, uh, let's get to news of the Jews. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J, news of the Jews. The important news of the Jews this week is straight out of Israel. It's a late-breaking bit of news of the Jews. But before we get to it, I want to take us to Germany, where a German dictionary changed a definition of, quote, Jew after an outcry from the Jews. I'm going to read from the Associated Press story. The leading dictionary of standard German has changed its definition of Jew, or Jude in German, after a recent update caused an uproar in the country's Jewish community. The Duden Dictionary. So Duden is defining the Juden? The Duden Dictionary had recently added an explanation to its online edition, saying that, quote, occasionally the term Jew is perceived as discriminatory because of the memory of national socialist Nazi usage. In these cases, formulations such as Jewish people, Jewish fellow citizens, or people of the Jewish faith are usually chosen, end quote. And then there was an outcry from leading, quote, Jewish groups and individuals uh, from rootless cosmopolitans across the country who said basically that that's not right because if you're saying Jew is used pejoratively, you're basically reifying it. You're confirming that there is something pejorative about it. And the executive director of the Central Council of Jews, Daniel Botman, wrote on Twitter, quote, is it okay to say Jew? Yes. Please don't say Jewish fellow citizens or people of the Jewish faith. <laughs> Just Jews. Thank you. 
End quote. This, of course, music to my ears as I once famously fought a battle with the Hartford Current copy desk when I referred to Senator Joseph Lieberman as a Jew who represented the state of Connecticut in the Senate. And they said, isn't that derogatory? And I said, no, calling someone a Jew is not derogatory. I am a Jew. But of course, you know, they weren't totally wrong in that some people, you know, whereas no one ever thinks that calling someone a real Christian is derogatory, calling someone a real Jew does sound kind of bad. So it's all like, do you modify it? Is there a modifier before it? What tone do you use? Do you sneer when you say it? But good for the Germans for sticking up for just the term Jew. Yay, Germany. You said, I'm a Jew, and your copy editor said, Mark, don't be so hard on yourself, man. You're a nice guy. (laughs) He said, don't be such a Jew. I love this. I love this. I love also when people get very uncomfortable about language because you're like, that's not offensive, but it's offensive that you think it's offensive. Think it's offensive. <laughs> like, like that's yes. what bothers me. But it's like, can we say that? We, I mean, like that's happened, right? Like, and it's it's funny, Mark. You've definitely influenced my thinking. Like, we when we started the show, I'd be like our Jewish guest, and you'd be like our Jew of the week, and you once like confronted me about it, and I was like, oh, it's so weird. No one wants to be called that, but like that's what we are. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Duden abides. The, <laughs> Stephanie, if you were introduced, if you were giving a talk and said, and Stephanie Butnick, who's on a podcast that hosts many people of the Jewish faith. The Jewish faith is something, is like, I know I'm talking to a Christian. Right, exactly. It, it, way to be othered. It's like, hello, fellow teens. I'm like, you're <laughs> messianic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, great stuff happening in Germany, but even greater stuff happening in Israel. Liel, would you give us the late breaking news in Israeli aerospace culinary innovations? I'm only here for two weeks and Ori the Country (laughs) produces a masterpiece of News of the Jews. Get this. An Israeli experiment... (laughs) I'm sorry, this is going to take a lot because I really can't do this on a straight face. An Israeli experiment to grow chickpeas in space was sent up (laughs) on Saturday, on Shabbos, of course, to the International Space Station as part of the Northrop Grumman resupply mission. The experiment, known as the Space Humus Project, <laughs> or the SHP, is the brainchild of Space IL co-founder Jonathan Weintraub and is being helped by scientists from Israel and Stanford University. The idea is in part to see how chickpeas, a staple food used in a variety of dishes like trina and hummus, uh, will fare once in space. I mean, <laughs> I'm so confused. What's the Muppets show? Pigs in space? Right. Now, pigs in space. This is <laughs> chick. He's in space. You could, by the way, totally see the like brainstorm that led to this particular decision. Shlomo, we haven't come up with a thing to send to space. Deadline tomorrow. What to send? Like, I don't know. You want some hummus in space? Good idea. Hummus in space. Okay. I want to throw a wrench into this plan. As Jerusalem Post points out, chickpeas are considered a superfood, being extremely high in protein, carbs, and vitamin, and very filling. I feel like what we're not talking about, about growing chickpeas in space, and I imagine like eating hummus and chickpeas in the space shuttle is like, can we talk about the gas? They're going to be astronauts with like hummus gas. And I feel really bad for them. That's one of those things like sex in space that we don't talk about. We don't, we, we want to know, but we don't want to know, right? We don't talk about hummus, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, but I think Stephanie's completely right. Because look, I've experienced the aftermath of hummus in both <laughs> tanks and submarines. I would not like to be in the stratosphere uh, when that particular explosion. When that noxious substance. <laughs> What is Hamas going to make of this? That the Jews are now sending... It's, no, it's Hamas. They're now sending their Jew food into space, probably strapped to the head of a dolphin. It's intergalactic takeover. I love this.
As we contemplate the situation in the Ukraine, we go straight to the ground to our man, Vladislav Vlad Davidson. He is a friend of the show. He's a writer, translator, and critic, contributor to Tablet Magazine, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. He comes to us in an interview recorded on Monday afternoon from an undisclosed secure location in Kiev. Since then, things have heated up a little bit, but here is Vlad giving us a little bit of a taste of what life is like on the ground. Vlad Davidson, where are you right now? I'm in Kiev in an undisclosed location in a safe house. Okay, so most of us, myself included, and I believe about 85% of our listeners, sort of paying sort of tangential attention to what goes on right now in the Ukraine. We know that things are tough. We know that Putin is threatening war. But before we go on in this conversation, Vlad, can you give us the lay of the land? Could you tell us what it is that's going on right now where you are? So I am in Kiev, which has been under a barrage of disinformation war and threats from the Russian Federation, its former colonial master. I am reporting, and I have been here for three weeks. I, uh, I've lived here before. I'm very deeply committed to the city and this country. I wrote a book about Ukraine called From Odessa with Love. My beloved wife, Regina Marinovska-Davidson, is a nice Jewish girl from Paris and Odessa. I am really hoping that Herr Putin does not destroy this country because half my friend's family and 90% of my professional life is here. So I, I, I'm really hoping there's no large-scale war. What does it feel uh, right now in Kiev? Is that feeling that war is imminent as we hear and read here in newspapers? Or is it just sort of life, business as usual, with sort of the most tangential idea that war may be in the offing? Well, look, war is probably of the kind that we were expecting here, as in airstrikes on military infrastructure in Kiev is less likely to happen now, an hour ago, Mr. Putin having recognized the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Exactly an hour ago, we listened to the speech and they're going to be recognized. So we know which direction he's going in. We did not know which of the many paths that he had in front of him he was going to take. He had, let's say, 15 to 20 railroad tracks that he could go down, all going in different directions with different effects, with different branching decision trees that he would have to take. And he picked one. He picked the one I actually expected. I do expect either a dirty war tomorrow or the deal, which I suspect the the Europeans uh, cobbled together with him to give him a safe phasing measure way out to kick in. I don't think he's going to tomorrow start a, a wider war 
in order to take the, uh, the rest of the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republic's promised territory, which is the rest of the unoccupied Lugansk and Donetsk. For those people who don't really pay attention to this part of the world, there was a separatist proxy Russian-led war. They took a lot of territory. Then the Ukrainian army in the summer of 14 uh, started taking back territory. They took back most of what the Russians and the Russian-led proxies had taken. They had about a third of it when the Russian army, in order to keep the uprising from falling, came in directly with the Russian army. Not Air Force, but long-range ballistic missiles and uh, a lot of artillery in the summer of 2014. Then there was Minsk-1. There was more fighting. And then in February of 2015, exactly seven years ago, you had the second Minsk Accord, which was dissolved essentially an hour ago when President Putin recognized the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. So all bets are off because the peace treaty and the way forward, which had never been implemented by either side for seven years, but basically had a, a stalemate effect and kept this conflict from becoming all-encompassing and killing tens and hundreds of thousands of people, that's been broken. All right. So now we're, we're in the heart of this tumultuous situation. No one really knows what goes on. And we clearly want to focus on the thing that matters most to us, which is naturally Jews. Uh, of course, the president of, of the Ukraine, Zelensky, is Jewish. Yes. Famously so. Famously, infamously so. Does that play in any way into this conflict? Is there a specific kind of like Jew subtweet, uh, sub story as people kind of like think about these things like, oh, well, maybe that's part of the reason why we got where we got? Or is that, you know, fly by most people? Look, there, there are a lot of Jewish stories and there are Jewish subtexts and Jewish narratives to this war. Tell us about them. Well, I mean, just, just an hour ago, the, the president of Russia was ranting and raving, literally his speech recognizing Donetsk and Lugansk was a rant, like a bitter, poisonous rant full of mad implications and self-pity and rage and hatred and pent-up aggression, a completely nasty speech. It was full of the usual talking points about Nazis and uh, neo-Nazis and Banderavites taking control of Kiev and making it very difficult for people who didn't want to live like Nazis. Of course, all crazy. This is an eight-year war of information where the president of Russia has been basically a conspiracy theorist about, about neo-Nazis. And here he is screaming about neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And the president's a Jew. <laughs> and also Mr. Yermak, the head of a presidential administration, is also half Jewish. But but Vlad, just, just to be clear, so so Putin has this talking point of, you know, you, if you're in the West, you shouldn't support this Ukrainian government because this is essentially a sort of neo-Nazi plot to sort of take over, reassert itself in Europe. But that is sort of inconvenienced by the fact that the president is famously actively identifiably Jewish. Is, is that correct? Well, that's true. I mean, he's, I, I think he's, I believe some, some Orthodox Christian. I mean, he's a Jewish identity. He looks Jewish. He looks like an Ashkenazi Jew and he looks like a Jewish pretty boy actor. And he, he jokes about being a Jew on, on, on TV and in his political campaign, his presidential campaign. And he also does not hide the fact that he had uh, both of his grandfathers killed in the Holocaust. He wore a yarmulke in front of the Kotel. I've, I've had discussions with him about his Jewish identity in private, which are not for public consumption, as is not the location of the safe house that I'm in. So you know, he's, he's a big fat Jew, except he's slim. When you walk down the street, and, and I realize how ridiculous this sound talking about you know the average Ukrainian, but when you walk down the street and, and, and have these conversations, is the fact that Putin's talking points are so heavily tethered to neo-Nazis and that Zelensky is so famously and actively Jewish. Does this register at all with anyone outside our kind of Jew-obsessed milieu? So the president of Ukraine is a Jewish gentleman, well, a Ukrainian gentleman of Jewish descent, who's open about his Jewish descent and very much aware of it. Whether he is, in fact, a practicing Jew and how much Jewish identity or culture he has probably not so much outside of the fact that his family was killed in the Holocaust, and that's important to him. And whether he is or is not a Christian in terms of his personal faith, that doesn't matter. The Ukrainian people gave 70%, 73% in the second round of the vote to a Jew. 
a Jewish comedian who ran for uh, president of Ukraine after ha- having engaged in a TV show where he becomes the president of Ukraine in an unlikely landslide, winning in the TV show an unlikely 67%, which was only overshadowed by his real vote get, which was 73%. But I, I assume that there are also Jews uh, you know, in the Ukraine who support the Russians, right? Yeah, I mean, there are, yeah. It's, it's interesting, in the, in the last parliamentary election, there were, there were Jews in every political party, but they are spread out across every single political party. There's not like a Jewish political party. It's not like we're in America where, where the Democrats get 70, 75% of a Jewish vote. There were Jews in, in President Poroshenko's party. There were Jews in Timoshenko's nationalist populist party for old women. There were pro-Russian Jews in the For, for Life party. Uh, one of the main politicians in Medvedchuk's party, the Platform for Life, the Oplok party, is this completely filthy pro-Russian Ukrainian Jewish con artist by the name of Rabinovich, who's basically a former weapons dealer, allegedly. German newspaper Bild says that he, he is known to be litigious, allegedly, according to the German, German newspaper Bild, a former weapons dealing pro-Russian Jew in the Ukrainian parliament who I wrote about this in Tablet and in my forthcoming second book about Jews in Ukraine, he accused Zelensky of being a fascist on the dais of the Ukrainian parliament when Zelensky's people went after this pro-Russian politician, Medvedchuk. So you have this completely ridiculous situation where you have the head of a pro-Russian party named Drabinovich, who is a big fat Jew, accusing the Jewish president of being a Nazi. So basically, us Jews have found a way to basically muck things up in a really spectacular fashion in the Ukraine. And this seems a lot like the the inner fightings of your local shul, right? Basically. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's about right. It's it's crazy. This this country is really, really, really odd and really difficult to explain to people. I'm very attached to it. And there are Jews everywhere. I want to take this moment and recommend slash urge everyone listening to us right now to buy and read your incredible book, which is in, in, in part a collection of your essays about Ukraine for Tablet, uh, the name of which again is? From Odessa with Love, just out now. If you want to understand not just the situation in Ukraine right now, but really Europe, mankind, human nature, the world. This book by my dear friend Vlad is what you need to buy right now. Vlad Davidson, uh, stay safe. So uh, hello back to everyone in New York. Uh, I miss New York very much. Uh, Safe houses in Kiev during war are a lot of fun, but I'm from New York and I do miss it. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox, here's a question that came in on our Facebook group this week. Rachel writes, I need some they mitzvah advice. I finally convinced my daughter, who describes herself as non-binary, to have a b'nai mitzvah and told her she could wear a suit or whatever she liked. I told her I don't care if she believes in God. She seems to be rejecting Judaism less now, resenting the lessons less, even hating me a little less. So here's where I need your help. She doesn't want a party. It's important to me to invite some distant relatives as weddings and bar mitzvahs are the only time we see each other and they couldn't come to my older son's recent COVID mitzvah. I'm caught between not wanting to be a pushy mom, but also thinking it won't kill my child to get some cheeks pinched by some weird old aunts and uncles they'll never remember and get lifted in a chair for a hot second. But my child says that they won't come. Thoughts? Rachel. (sighs) So can I be the first to weigh in here, guys? Please. I think if your child says no party, I think you have to honor that. I think someone who's not feeling like they want to be honored with a party shouldn't be forced to be honored with a party. I do think that you have to insist that they warmly greet and exchange pleasantries with the members of your congregation who are in attendance and that they act like an adult rather than retreating to a corner on their phone or whatever. Like you're joining a community and I think that they have to be an appropriate member of that community for that morning. But I don't think you throw a party for someone who doesn't want a party. That seems wrong to me. I don't know. Stephanie? Well, by the way, my favorite thing about this letter is that it's not like this parent has any issue with sort of the non-binary nature of right. the rite of passage. They just want a freaking party. Um, but I will say there's a seems to be like a, a loophole here because you could still get your cheeks. I mean, Mark, you sort of alluded to this. The service itself is is the event. So theoretically, you could very easily get your cheeks pinched. Your relatives could and certainly maybe should still come for just the service. In fact, I cut from this letter, which was originally longer, the part where the mom says, I mean, I just want my child to be lifted up in a chair for the horror." right? Like the horror seems to be a big part of it for the mom. And yeah, I think like, could there be a nice kiddish at the synagogue or wherever you have it, where all the relatives are there and people dine together, but maybe without it being a big party? Does it have to be the chair, the horror, the this, the that? Yeah, I'm with you there, Stephanie. Knowing nothing about the situation, I do detect that our parent here wants something to make their child feel special. And I almost feel like that's what we think of as the party, but I feel like there probably is a way to make this kid feel like, I mean, kid is the wrong word, right? Because this is a person who's becoming a Jewish adult. So there must be some way that isn't the party that we think of to sort of mark this this momentous occasion. Guys, guys, first of all, you're a kid until you turn 38 or until your parents <laughs> tell you otherwise. Second of all, I'm sorry, but poor Rachel here just wants a nice party, which she didn't have because her son's bar mitzvah got mucked up by COVID. And all this 12-year-old person has to do is realize that they live in a family and they shouldn't be selfish little brats. And so what Rachel has to do here is say, you don't want to party. I don't want to pay for your freaking horseback riding lessons or gymnastics or your freaking MacBook Pro, or for that matter, ice cream or treats or anything that makes you happy until you realize that you live in a family and you shouldn't be a selfish asshole. That's how parenting works in the corner of the world where I am right now. It's unfortunate that this whole thing has become oppositional. You know, once it's oppositional, I'm not sure you ever can rescue it. I don't know. Rachel, keep us posted. I know you're getting a lot of wisdom on our Facebook group. Keep us posted. We hope that it works out well for all of you. Producer Josh Cross, 
I just want to say, having known a lot of rebellious teenagers in my life. How many do you live with currently? Three. And (laughs) I hung out with about 12 of them. But I just want to reinforce that forcing this person to have this party that they don't want is a surefire way for them to be more likely to tell you off and walk out of their house and not talk to you. You don't want to do this. Remember, Josh, do you remember the scene in The Untouchables where Al Capone walks around the room with a baseball bat and no one knows whose head is going to get bashed in? This is what parenting teenagers should be mm-hmm. like. Wait, who is the parent? The Al Capone is the parent. And they should always just be looking right over their shoulder and be like, am I going to get, like, is my head going to get smashed in by this maniac? It should be fear and loathing all the freaking way. I mean, maybe they want to talk to their child after they leave the house. Leal, I love this because having actually been in your home, if there were people who feared someone less, it is your children to you. They don't fear you much. (laughs) So for all this tough guy attitude, I've seen your kids walk all over you. (laughs) It's beautiful. Come to me in my name, mitzvah. Don't call me godfather. Here's a letter uh, on which Stephanie, Leal, and I, I think we'll all agree. Uh, Um. This one came to me. It came into my mailbox, but I think it's for all of us. Hey, Mark, reaching out to you as a longtime listener, first-time emailer, tablet supporter. In your banter with Stephanie and Liel, especially during NOTJ, News of the Jews, sessions, you often venture into topics that involve U.S. law, gun control, freedom of religion, free speech, etc. While the three of you are important thought leaders in your own unique ways— <laughs> That feels like damning with such fate praise. That's something I would say to my kids. You might be an important thought leader in your own unique way. Opining on the state of the law is a bit outside of your lanes. Because some of your listeners likely consider your take on current events as gospel, I recommend that where appropriate, you bring an attorney into the conversation to provide a legal lens to inform and enhance your discussions. Shabbat Shalom, Adam Rosenthal, San Diego. Um, yeah, no, no, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, we, you go start your own pod, your own podcast. You have lots of creditable, accredited legal advice on our podcast. We're the boss. We're the boss. Adam, because in your emails, you often venture into what kind of sort of sounds like <laughs> normal human community, but isn't. I recommend that you bring in a podcaster into every one of your conversation, wherever appropriate. How I about mean, that? I just feel like next he's going to ask that we have a fact checker, make sure that anything we say is correct. I mean, it's just insane. Or a rabbi, <laughs> a rabbi to tell us what Judaism actually is. Adam, that Honestly, is not. <laughs> okay. I, what I really want on our show is like an in-house accountant to be on the line with us. It, it feels more on the nose for us. <laughs> All right. Uh, nice try, Adam. Okay. Um, Stephanie, would you like to read our next letter? I would love to read this one. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. Longtime listener, first time caller. I'm a 20 something living in NYC and I'm currently converting to Judaism. I'm doing it on my own, not for marriage. And as such, I partake in the minefield that is dating in New York City. This weird thing has been happening to me on dates recently. When I tell men that I'm converting, they say that they are too, except they aren't. The conversation goes a little like this. Me, I'm converting. Man, oh, me too. Me, really? Man, no, but I had a Jewish college roommate slash Jewish ex slash Jewish friend, so I basically am Jewish. Our letter writer asks, WTF is this? Is this a new thing that guys are saying? Is it just that they likely haven't met someone in the process of converting and they're uncomfortable and making weird jokes? This has happened two separate times in the span of a week. Maybe it is too much to ask you to try to understand the black hole that is the male 20-something brain. But could you explain this or help? SOS, a confused convert. Just this morning, my neighbor down the hall told me he was converting and asked for (laughs) $50,000. I love this letter and I have I have no idea. I don't know what to make of it. Mark, what do you think? Look, since this person did reach out to us for advice, I do have to offer, first of all, a solution, which is um, start dating Jewish guys because they're not going to give you weird, oh, I once had a Jewish roommate. I'm basically a Jew. They're going to be like, oh, that's cool. They're going to feel like, oh, jackpot, you know? So that's, that's one possible solution I'm just going to put out there that I think has crossed our listeners' minds. Beyond that, no, I can't explain the 20-something mind that says like, oh yeah, I'm converting also, psych, because that's redonkulous. Obviously, don't go on dates with these men. It also feels like a real mood killer because you're like, oh, you're just making a joke about something that's like deeply, like, like it just is right. such a weird, like, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the right response is. I think the right response is like, oh, how interesting. Oh, what sparked this right. decision? Like, like there's some- That's a mature response. Exactly. A thoughtful human being who's intrigued by other people's journeys and- It's and, sort of like, whoa, other, tell me about would that. Would be like, whoa, that's so interesting. I like, care about you. Tell me more. Conversation solved for the next half an hour. We're going to go deep on this, right? But most people are deeply uncomfortable about religion. And if they're Jewish or half Jewish or quarter Jewish or semi-Jewish, they're uncomfortable about why anyone would want to be Jewish. And if they're Gentile, they probably think that Judaism's a little weird. No, you're encountering people who are not fully actualized, authentic humans, I think, because you've gotten real super fast and that made them uncomfortable, right? Right. And why would you say, why would you say me too? Like in in what (laughs) world is this like, oh yeah, no, I'm also changing my religion. Like how is that even remotely okay? I like the idea of like a dating service for people who are both converting because it's like we're not converting for each other. Like we're just on this journey together. I also am very curious and I wonder if this listener writer will write back because like I want to know what Jewish guys think because I almost feel like it's a good tell like when you Mm. say that to see what how they respond, which is like, oh, I really liked you, but this seals the deal or like, I don't know, like, you know how how. Jewish guys can be weird about this stuff. Well, except the Jewish guys who have a, a shiksa fetish are going to be repulsed. Like, I don't, I don't want. Well, they, they get, they have it both ways. No, 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 no. Some of them don't want that. Some of them want a Gentile wife. They don't want an ancestrally Gentile wife who's now becoming Jewish. They want to get away from mom. And so their effed up thing is they're now repulsed. But I want to hear from all kinds, right? Although they're not listening to our podcast. <laughs> So, like, we're not going to hear from, like, the self-loathing weird ones who would be repulsed by the converting Gentile. I don't know. Hey, everyone. It's producer Josh. The crisis in Ukraine is the world's biggest story now waiting to see whether Russia will attack, what the U.S. will do, and what will happen to the country. If you're an American Jew like me, this might be the first time you've really thought about Ukraine. Or maybe your family's from there, and you've even been back to visit. But for some religious Jews, Ukraine is a place that remains deeply significant, so vital to their observance that they make a pilgrimage there every year. They are the Breslover Hasids, and once a year, just before Rosh Hashanah, they descend on a city in Ukraine, Uman, for an ecstatic celebration at the grave of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. I know, it sounds a little nuts, and it sort of is. Our colleague Armin Rosen, a senior writer at Tablet, traveled to Uman this past fall to see the festivities for himself, the first major pilgrimage since the COVID pandemic shuttered international travel in 2020, and maybe the last before the possible outbreak of war. He wrote about that experience for Tablet in an article called The Jewish Burning Man. Of course, I also sent him with a travel recorder and begged him to get some audio while he was there. We thought we'd aired a nice segment in the lead-up to Rosh Hashanah this year. However, now that everybody's talking about Ukraine, we wanted to give you a different window into the country. A look at a tiny city that, for a few days each year, attracts thousands of followers of a rabbi who died more than 200 years ago, and whose legacy combines devout worship with the more mystical elements of Hasidic tradition. Here's Armin Rosen reporting from Uman. Uman, Ukraine, is a place that's simultaneously unimportant and extremely important, and this is what makes it so special. To most of the world, it's an obscure city of 85,000 in the heartlands of one of the poorest countries in Europe. This is not a tourist destination. There is no grand architecture. Much of what a visitor sees resembles a post-Soviet Dr. Seuss world with clusters of newly and hastily built hotels, apartment buildings, banquet halls, takeout stands, and tchotchke shops, all of which sit empty for most of the year. Every Rosh Hashanah, however, when the Jewish calendar begins anew, tens of thousands of religious Jews swarm into Uman, as if it's the most important place on earth. Why? Uman is where you'll find the tomb of Rabbi Nachman of Breslau. The city is about halfway between Kiev and the port city of Odessa, The Rebbe died here in 1810, but just before, he called for his followers to celebrate every Jewish New Year with him. A few tens of thousands of other curious Jews tag along too, piling into a cramped and unscenic neighborhood in an obscure Ukrainian city on one of the most important holidays of the year. 
Rabbi Nachman famously said, come to me on Rosh Hashanah. So here we are. It's Friday, September 3rd, 2021, and I've just arrived in Uman. The pilgrims were eager to discuss why they'd made the long journey here. Pinchas, from Lakewood, New Jersey, summed it all up. Um, I, re- I, I really spiritually, you asked me one of the reasons before, I just to give a rundown why I come here, I keep coming back here. I literally feel my spiritual, and I know again, everyone has their own thing, but I, re- I, I literally feel that my lawyer for like the Day of Judgment, which is Rishona, my lawyer is here. You look around, like you're with a group of like-minded people, yeah. all coming for a similar purpose. Yeah. And I feel like that would give someone feel like a like a rest stop on a long journey through life. You have like a rest stop once a, once a year, Rosh Hashanah, you come here, yeah. refuel with people, and it helps you out the year. The pull of this place defies logical explanation. Nearly every Uman pilgrim has gotten on a plane and left their family behind during what's basically the Jewish version of Thanksgiving. These people think of a trip to a grimy Ukrainian city as an annual reset button, crucial to their spiritual health and just to their lives in general. They've been going to extreme lengths to get to the tomb for years. It was made almost unreachable by the Soviet Union between the late 1930s and communism's fall in the early 1990s. In 2020, very few people actually made the pilgrimage because of COVID and tight travel restrictions. In 2021, the crowds are huge again, if not entirely back to their pre-pandemic size. The pilgrimage can feel like an exhausting crush of people, with long and intense days ending in dorms you share with seven other people. My Rosh Hashanah would still be a lot cushier than what Jewish visitors experienced in the early 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when Uman had just opened back up. Rabbi Mayor Elkabaz explains. And of course it wasn't like it was today. There were no showers. We were here for over a week with no showers. Food, we had to bring everything canned, canned sardines, canned this, canned that, matzah, gefilte fish cans, you know, glass jars, whatever. Once my mayonnaise opened up on a Lufthansa flight and they had to put my whole bag in another bag because the, the mayonnaise spilled. Oh boy, it stunk, okay? And there was like a stench everywhere. So physically, there was nothing. But the light people felt, you know, there was such a, a, a light of holiness that can't be explained. The feeling of the yearning was unbelievably intense. People were getting dirty everywhere. There were, you know, that was dust everywhere. But people were extremely happy and they didn't feel anything. You felt you were on a real high. It was a real, real spiritual high. So why this place and why this rabbi? The usual explanation is that Rabbi Nachman, founder of one of the most successful and influential sects of mystical Orthodox Judaism, is the so-called psychologist of the soul. He was someone whose ideas have a profundity and a straightforwardness that can make them resonate for nearly anyone. He told deep original stories and also wrote complex philosophical works. As a result, his followers span an unexpected range, Ashkenazi and Sephardi, lifelong devotees or people who became students of the Rebbe late in life, the spiritual seekers. Rabbi Nachman died at the age of 38 in 1810. He wanted to be buried in Uman because its cemetery contained the graves of local Jews who had been massacred in a pogrom decades earlier. Shortly before his death, the rabbi made a promise to anyone who visited his tomb and recited the Ten Psalms from the Tikkun Klali, a book whose title means full repair. I asked Rabbi Elkabaz about this too. What's supposed to happen when you say Tikkun Klali at the Rebbe's tomb? A lot. What do you mean? But supposed well, to you go, you you take out the tikkun. It's not magic. It's all like okay, I'll yeah. do this, and that's it. Hocus pocus. It's not hocus pocus. There's a Rabbi Nachman has a lot of depth and concept of the tikkun atali. What's written by him as what it's supposed to do. What you see or not is not necessarily a proof. Just because you don't see the changes doesn't mean also there's no changes. It doesn't work like that. Rabbi Nachman promised in front of two witnesses. He swore that he will do the maximum power that he has, and he shows and expresses that he has this power, to pull a person out of the lowest depths of hell, no matter what he may have done. The main thing is that he wants to change from now on. This person has hope. What's unique about this is we don't find any tzaddik in Jewish history that has made such a, a commitment to a promise and oath such as that. I wasn't in Uman this past Rosh Hashanah because I believed the rabbi who died 222 years ago would plead my case to Hashem in the afterlife. 
I was there because Uman Rosh Hashanah is an event with no real parallel, and this would be the first full-scale pilgrimage of the COVID era. This self-contained bubble of tens of thousands of Jews is strange and unlikely and unequaled by anything else in Judaism. And it only lasts three or four days. Uman Rosh Hashanah is supposed to be somewhere towards the peak of Jewish spiritual experience. It's also a lot of fun. There's music and dancing nearly everywhere. An expectation of a good time was only part of what drew me there. I know people who have been to Uman, and they described it the way some people talk about life-altering psychedelic experiences. If you wanted to see the light, Uman was a place you could actually do it. In contrast, the global pandemic has made everything seem a little less stable. Part of me thought, if I don't go this year, maybe I'll never have another chance. Although, as Nachman Fried, a young Breslover from Brooklyn, suggested, maybe none of these factors really explain why I ended up in Uman. There's the idea that if you're here, that Reb Nachman wants you here. It's not you, like you don't. It's not something you decide. Well, you feel like you decided it, but they, they, you, you, you're brought here for a purpose. So that's that. The one big site that Jews come to Uman to see is Rabbi Nachman's tomb itself. He is buried inside a wide and nondescript hall built in the 1990s on a platform jutting out from a steep hillside. The tomb's noisy central area has the same lived-in feel as a lot of other Jewish holy sites. On Friday afternoon, two days before Rosh Hashanah, it is practically bursting with people studying and praying. Hour and a half till Yontif starts. Getting close enough to touch the grave for just a few seconds requires some light shouldering and elbowing. Some visitors kiss its black surface. Some drape their faces and arms over the stone. Others pray with great intensity, and a few even cry. The original Ohel, the 19th century structure built over Rabbi Nachman's tomb, survived until 1942, when it was destroyed by the Nazis. After the war, a man named Daniel Zagaisky wound up owning the property. What the Soviets didn't know was that he was a convert to Judaism. His papers didn't reflect it, so he could secretly protect the tomb, which was only marked by a concrete slab. In the 1960s and 70s, a handful of determined Breslavers made it to the tomb. They cleverly navigated the Soviet bureaucracy in order to pray in the nondescript side yard where their Rebbe was buried. The tomb was almost lost again when the house was nearly destroyed to make way for apartments in the late 1970s. Sparing the tomb proved to be the only real point of agreement between Jimmy Carter and Leonid Brezhnev during an especially unproductive U.S.-Soviet summit meeting in 1979. A little over a decade later, the Soviet Union collapsed and Uman reopened as a pilgrimage site. It took the fall of two totalitarian regimes and a series of unlikely events, but the tomb had survived and Jews could now freely pray there. There's a tradition that dates back to just after Rabbi Nachman's time that your trip to Uman shouldn't be too easy. Rabbi Benjamin Weinreb had an especially tough road to Uman. He was caught in Hurricane Ida's direct hit on New Jersey on the way to the airport. I met him a couple hours before Shabbos began. I spent 48 hours getting here today. From Lake what, Jersey. Oh, you got New here Jersey. today. Like You got to Ukraine today. I left my house at 8 o'clock Wednesday night. Whoa. I just got here. I just pulled up a half hour ago. Wow. Not to mention that. I lost my car along the way. Wait, what? Oh, all right. Oh, there's like car flooding flood. and my stuff. Car, yeah, my car flooded while we're in it. I uh, slept in the airport for two nights. I went, I went a long, uh, long journey, but it's worth it. Yeah. He had a simple explanation for why he was here. 
Reb Nachman, as he said so. And he's done more for me than uh, most other people in my life. The beauty of Reb Nachman, certain rabbis talk to the people that are all the way at the top. The bigger the rabbi, the higher the students. Reb Nachman said the bigger the rabbi, the lower the students. The sicker a person is, the greater the doctor needs to be to heal them. So we see people here that are partying, people here that are, you know, look like they're totally yeah. off in the deep end. They also need a Nachman even more than us. They're more sick spiritually, they need a bigger doctor. Yeah. is a big enough doctor to be the doctor for the healthy people and the sick people. On the Friday night before Rosh Hashanah, thousands gather in the Cloys, the central Breslover shul in Uman. It's a hulking, unfinished structure with fluorescent lighting and concrete floors, a bit like a warehouse. You can see the traditional Breslover's davening slowly and with great concentration. Don't worry, of course I didn't record on Shabbat, but this was recorded Sunday and sounds exactly like what I heard. When you go to a different service with a different group of pilgrims, the vibe can dramatically swing. At around midnight, after Shabbat ended, Sephardic Jews at the tomb began davening slichot, the special prayers of repentance leading up to Yom Kippur. The tomb was packed with guys with dreadlocks, next to guys with payas, next to guys who looked like they were taking a break from running a Tel Aviv falafel shop. Frequently, the place would just kind of erupt. As pilgrims arrive, Jewish Uman goes from crowded to jam-packed. I met people who credited Rabbi Nachman with getting them out of trouble at work, and lawyers and psychiatrists who became Nachman heads later in life and now study his works together on Zoom. I kibitzed with Satmar Hasids and met a blissed-out American hippie kid who came to Uman for Hanukkah nine months earlier and just never got around to leaving. He said he'd never been happier. Even in Sobieska Park, a stunning 18th-century landscaped wilderness and the most famous non-Jewish thing in town, it was possible to find groups of Jews breaking out into song, like this one, which had just davened the afternoon mincha prayer on a cliff overlooking a winding artificial lake. There is a festive atmosphere in Uman for a couple days before Rosh Hashanah, but it doesn't really feel like a party exactly. Even with constant singing and dancing, the pilgrimage has a much more serious feel than any music festival I've been to. Seemingly a majority of the pilgrims are Hasidic Jews from places like Williamsburg and Beit Shemesh. Sephardim from Israel are probably the second largest demographic. The yeshivish and American modern Orthodox pop up in visible numbers too. And then there's another smaller but still very significant group, the Hasidic hippies. They're Jewishly observant spiritual seekers, drawn to the interplay of joy and seriousness that permeates many of Rabbi Nachman's ideas. In Uman, they daven in a tent and hostel complex called Nakuda Tova, meaning positive point, a reference to Rabbi Nachman's instruction to find just one good attribute in everyone. Menachem Engel has been to Uman for over a dozen Rosh Hashanahs, using Nakuda Tova as his usual base during the holiday. Today, he lives in Sfat, the historic center of Jewish mysticism in northern Israel, where he has a wife and young family and works as a commercial composer and music producer. Engel has the wild beard of a biker, the laid-back attitude of a musician, and the outlook of a Hasid of Rabbi Nachman. You sit there, Rabbi Nachman says that you can talk to him um, and, and you can tell him anything you want. So it's like, you're really, you know, obviously you're not supposed to ask a tzaddik who's dead for, you know, things, but you're allowed to talk to him about what's going on in your life. Just like a regular chassid would go to his Rebbe who's alive today, you can go and talk to him about what's going on. And that's what I plan on doing after we finish this thing. I got to go to the Tzion for like a good hour and talk to him about my whole life. Rabbi Nachman's eclecticness is part of the appeal, especially for someone like Engel. Also, yeah. it's, it's a big thing in Brussels to dance every single day. Really? And, and yeah, yeah, Rabbi Nachman. dance every day. Uh, Rabbi, yeah, well, Rabbi Nussin says, who's Rabbi Nachman's main student, that you are supposed to dance every single day, and that is a form of tshuva. It's a form of repentance. So huh. why everybody's dancing, it breaks harsh judgments from, from heaven. So yeah. maybe even after, before I go into Tzion, I'm going to probably do a little <laughs> hopping up and down, you know what I'm yeah. saying? 
That's well, the interesting thing is that it's like you're dancing for teshuva. You're not dancing yeah. for fun necessarily. Yeah. It's not supposed to be like you're frivolous. dancing to connect. It's like a real holy experience. Yeah. Also, you know, you're building up like a holy sweat. At noon on the day before Rosh Hashanah, pilgrims cram into the tomb and into the surrounding streets. From a side room behind the grave, a chazan leads a massive reading of the Tikkun Klali, broadcast over loudspeakers. At the beginning of each of the psalms, people scream the first line, clap their hands, and bellow to the heavens. The sounds of the ten psalms echo through a city where Jews were nearly exterminated within living memory. Now, every single Jew who's come is in the same place, singing the same sacred words together. As a first-time visitor, I felt there was a lot of pressure for something to happen over Rosh Hashanah. Like if you don't have a moment of pure spiritual insight, or feel you've been elevated to the highest of all heights, or feel Rabbi Nachman tugging on your non-existent payas, does it actually mean you've wasted the trip? Rabbi Nachman anticipated these sorts of questions. He said that coming to Uman for Rosh Hashanah was enough. You didn't even have to daven. Your Rosh Hashanah was already deeply meaningful just by being in Uman. You're there, and for the next several days, you're surrounded by thousands of fellow pilgrims praying and celebrating all day long. And then suddenly, it's over. Uman starts clearing out almost the moment Rosh Hashanah ends. That's when I caught up with Menachem Engel again, who said a quick getaway is what Rabbi Nachman wants from us. Somebody asked the Rebbe, like, what do I do after Rosh Hashanah? Like, what do I do like, when I go to a tzaddik? He's like, you go to the tzaddik, you get what you need, and then you run back home. You don't, you don't have to linger around. There's nothing to linger around for. You have to go back home and do what you need to do now. The Uman Rosh Hashanah I experienced is a chaotic and sleep-deprived few days spent far away from family and friends in a place that's rapidly becoming overbuilt and that might be too popular for its own good. For me, it was also a mass reconciliation of a past that can seem fragile and in danger. This is not just Uman's past, but the entire Jewish people's. I think that's the reason working-class Sephardim and Nachlaot hippies and Borough Park construction workers and randos like me wind up in Uman, even if it's all sort of subconscious. We feel the pull and the power of bringing something to life. And we get something in return, too. By the end of Rosh Hashanah here, a total stranger could look me in the eye and promise that great things were coming. And it didn't feel the least bit weird. It's your first time here? Yeah. First time. Awesome. You're going to have the wildest year ever. You ready? Mazel Tov's, our longtime listener, original OG, early fan, friend of the pod, Sippy Pearl Turner, has sent in a Mazel Tov to her son, Gabi, on his marriage to Dina Berman in Israel last Thursday. The wedding was a beautiful event, she writes, filled with lots of love. Mazel Tov to all of the Pearl Turners, the Pearls Turner. May they live long, may they prosper, may they be fruitful, may they multiply, may they be COVID-free, and may they flourish. Liel, do you have a Mazel Tov? I wish to extend the heartiest Mazel Tov to Rabbi Dr. Nathan Slifkin, the proprietor, the creator, the mastermind behind the Biblical Museum of Natural History in Bet Shemesh, Israel, one of the hidden gems of Israeli tourism. If you want your kids to go on an amazing journey through all the animals mentioned in the Bible and the Talmud, hold the boa constrictor, figure out which bugs are kosher and which aren't, and then eat some. This is an amazing place, and I'm really grateful to have witnessed it myself. Stephanie Butnick, 
I have a personal mazel tov. Um, I don't think we talked about this on the show, but my husband, Ben Cohen, who's a sports reporter, was at the Olympics in Beijing for the past like two plus weeks. And so many people just went above and beyond taking care of me and little Edith while he was away. My mom, his mom, my bestie, Irene, all these people just sort of really, really helped me while he was gone. And I really appreciate it. And I just feel like it, it takes an Olympic village. How about that? And I really am just like so moved. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia. And our associate producer is Quinn Waller. See, if you're at the top, you get an, a modifier executive. In the middle, you're just producer. And then if you're the newest arrival, you get a modifier. Again, you associate produce us. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Joel Simon of Congregation Shari Tzedek in Tampa, Florida. And we come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. After an outcry from the Jews, I'm going to read from the Sorry, Yahoo. Hey, Cat Stevens, this. be quiet. Speaking of an outcry.